Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Hello there. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am your host and myth-obsessed weirdo, Liv. Today, here with a, a special episode. Because why not, you know? Today, I spoke with past guest and generally lovely human, Amy Pistone, about all things Sophocles' Antigone. Ostensibly, this episode is to tell many of you about a contest that's being put on and for which I am one of the judges, but ultimately it just turned into a really interesting look at Sophocles' Antigone and all the many forms that it has taken over the past, like, century. And because of that, well, it's getting a slot as a regular episode, because I make the rules. Just like last year's Playing Dionysus that we announced together as well, this year there's a contest being put on where high school and university students in the US and Canada are asked to perform a scene from Antigone in whatever way they imagine with the chance of winning prizes and glory. But if I do say so myself, uh, most importantly, you get to entertain me and the other judges who will be watching the performances. I cannot wait. But when Amy asked to join me to announce this and talk about some of the reception that might just inspire some ideas, we decided to turn it into a whole episode on the reception of Antigone, being like different versions of the story, the play that have been adapted over recent decades and the past century, and the ways they've used the story of Antigone to tell vastly different political stories across the world. So if you're worried that this episode is all about a contest, you don't need to be. Honestly, the announcement and the details of the contest take up like 5% of the episode. So if you're a student, like, listen up. But if you're just interested in Sophocles' Antigone, because how could you not be? This episode is very much still for you. There are such varied takes on this story that I had never heard of, like from occupied France during World War II to Argentina in the 80s to the question of abortion in New York to the debate over the return of indigenous remains to their communities. Like the ancient story of Antigone has been and is continued to be used to tell countless stories of political machinations of standing up to tyranny, speaking truth to power, everything in between. 
This is episode 230, Playing Antigone, or maybe Creon? Reception of Sophocles' Antigone with Dr. Amy Pistone. There's another competition for people to perform a scene from a play, and I'm just always so here for it. Um, so I just want to talk about that and Antigone. And honestly, Amy, tell me everything. <laughs> and, you know, make me sound like I'm not ridiculous trying to phrase this question. <laughs> no, I, I, so we are doing a new, um, this is our third time doing a competition for high school and college students to perform scenes from uh, a Greek tragedy. And the one we've chosen this year is Antigone, uh, which is great because it's, a, it's one that's, if, if you're going to read one Greek tragedy, oftentimes that's the one tragedy that in school is is covered in the curriculum. And one of the things that I'm so excited about with this play is that it allows us to get into kind of this rich like history of this play as as a work of, of political protest, as a, a story that's been kind of retold from really interesting different perspectives. And so, um, you know, it's a, it's a play that you can do a very sort of trying to make it historically authentic and do a very sort of literal translation or it's a it's a play that also has gone in just like these really interesting um political and and sort of subversive directions as well which is one of the things that I love so much about this play it is like I feel like it is yeah the number one kind of there's just so much about Antigone out there I I covered it I think last year finally and it's one of those things like I feel like I'm one of the only people out there. It's not my favorite. It is very good, but it's just like I'm so fascinated, I guess, by the way that it has become like the go to play, like in a really kind of fascinating way. And it's nice that it features a lady, though. I did jokingly say that it should be better called like the Creon show. <laughs> the man talks so much. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's one of the interesting, like, that this is, you know, we talk about this as being like, you know, the Antigone. And yeah, it is like, Creon is like, in a literal sense, the protagonist, like he's the mm -hmm. guy with the most lines. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it is sort of an interesting, like how this play, you know, it, we, we call it Antigone, but it, it very much like it, she is not the lead character, even though in a lot of ways, she's sort of the, like the heart of the the story, though, one of the things I do want to talk about, and I think this is why, part of this is why I love it so much, um, because I think it's so much more complex than how it's often depicted. Like, mm -hmm. I think it's taught in a very simplistic way sometimes, where this is a good versus evil story. And it can be that, depending on how you want to stage it and how you want to frame it and things. It can be the story of this woman who heroically stands up against, like, state overreach and and you know someone who is wrong and she resists a tyrant and it can be a story about that but I think at its heart it, it actually sort of when I teach it I don't teach it as a good versus evil story and I think that really flattens out a lot of the complexity that is really baked into this and part of why it has endured for so long because it's it's a play that like I can I can tell you a version of this story where we're, we all agree that Antigone is the hero mm -hmm. um and, you know, she's she's nonviolently resisting a, an oppressive state who is in and we could set that in whatever time period we want to set that in. And it's a, it's this heroic feel good story. Or I can tell you a version of this story where like how many generations of the people of Thebes need to suffer for this one messed up family. Right. Like <laughs> you have yeah. like you got Oedipus and especially the way Sophocles tells it. Oedipus, like whatever Oedipus did wrong is very much suppressed in the story. So in in Sophocles' version of the Oedipus story, like we don't, it's not like some great familial crime. We don't get any any talk about the crimes further back in his family tree. It's just this guy, like he's just going to have a miserable life and <laughs> horrible, unimaginably horrible things are going to happen to him. And it is what it is. And then so by the time we get to the Antigone, um, which, you know, is the third, <laughs> we often talk about it as like the third of the trilogy that the Theban yeah. plays, but they weren't, I know you know this, but just for anyone who's not, yeah. not familiar with this, like they weren't ever performed as a trilogy and Antigone is not the third, like 
the Antigone was was staged before um, Oedipus Rex, Oedipus Tyrannus was. And, it, and, and, so, so, and then Colonus came last. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yep. Okay. Yeah. I thought Antigone was first, but I'm, I'm glad you confirmed because I was going to ask. Yeah. And we don't, <laughs> the other complicated thing is we don't know when almost any of Sophocles' plays were actually performed. <laughs> so mm. I say this like, oh, yes, that's that's exactly <laughs> when it was performed. Um, 440s-ish for Antigone. Oedipus Rex, We a lot of these we date based on other evidence. Like we don't have dates, firm dates for, for a lot of Sophocles' plays. And so... We're left with this, like, it's a story about a plague. Do you think that that means it was performed immediately after the plague of Athens? Or do you think that, like, that's tacky or it wouldn't have played well for people who really don't, you know, I mean, think about now how much not everyone wants to see a a show about a pandemic or a show mm-hmm. about a, you know, a, a I don't know, Last of Us. Like some people were like, I'm just not really feeling like a global <laughs> pandemic story right now. I kind of want some escapism. And so thinking about, like, when we think that Oedipus Rex was performed is largely depends on how you think the the existence of the plague and a play about a plague are going to interact with one another. But yeah. Antigone, we know was before. So we have <laughs> so we have Oedipus, right? This this like horrible, like slowly unfolding train wreck of a mystery story, kind of like figuring out, like, oh no, it was me. I did the oh, like, um, and then. By the time we get to Antigone, like we've had the seven against Thebes, which it doesn't isn't treated in any surviving Sophocles plays. And then we felt like effectively a civil war, right? Two brothers fighting and Thebes barely is left standing after this. And the brothers are dead. And now Creon tries to like put a nice bow on it and just give people some kind of closure. Like, okay, you know what? Like, that's the good guy. That's the bad guy. It's not it's not great, but like, we just need to move on. So let's give people some closure. We're going to bury one guy. We're going to not bury the other guy. And like, it'll give us some kind of emotional sense that this is done and we can, we can close the book on this horrible chapter of Thebes. And then comes Antigone who like, won't let that happen. And I, you know, I could, I could make a pretty good argument that one family having to deal with a tragedy of like, yeah, you should bury the dead and they should get, they should get proper funeral rites and everything. But if that's going to destabilize a, a barely hanging on city, maybe Oedipus's family just needs to take a take an L on this one. And you have a, a shade that doesn't get to, you know, rest and whatever. Like, that might be an okay cost for the good of the city. Um, and so I think, you know, there is a version of this where you can spin it to be Antigone's not obviously right. And Creon's not obviously wrong. And in mm-hmm. Sophocles' version the gods Tiresias tells us the gods are on the side of Antigone and it's a, it's an abomination that you you know there's a living body under the ground and a corpse above the ground and this is all an abomination and the gods won't talk to you anymore and that's fine I mean but it you can retell that story in ways that it's not it's not so simple and it's not mm-hmm. clear who's right and who's wrong which has been done a fair amount throughout the the reception of this play um so anyway that's part of why i think antigone sometimes is taught super simplistically and i think it's not a very interesting story when it's it's just a good versus evil i think it's much more interesting when you get into all of these layers of complexity and imagining the the interior lives of these characters and and thinking about the chorus who are the the kind of average people right the chorus is the closest you get to like the populace of a city um and what about the good of them? What about the good of the the average Thebans who would really just like to go back to a life where there isn't like a plague and a war and everything just because one stupid family can't get its act together? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a lot about how these, particularly the Theban plays, have been kind of like affected, I guess, by the way they've been perceived for so long. Like for me, it stands out so much in Oedipus because like, we we have this assumption i think if you just read the play or or like you know based on the entire societal way that we have like evaluated oedipus generationally i don't know i'm saying it weird but like (laughs) this way that like we just assume that the tragedy of oedipus is that he killed his father and married his mother and he's like you know he's gross he's this like monster who did this thing and like when you read it more critically and you think about what is actually happening, like to me, the tragedy is that this happy couple and their happy family 
got completely blown up by all of these things that absolutely nobody had any control over and it's all just the will of the fates and it's like the end of the story is not that they're just some like disgusting incestuous mess like the end of the story is that these people live for like 20 years happily married with a happy family thinking they were living this happy life and it turns out it's horrible and the god like i mean if we want to like you know beat up and play around with the story like if the gods the gods could have said something about it sooner Mm -hmm. like you're still like oh prophecy fulfilled like killed your dad slept with your mom like what like you could have said something much sooner and by all accounts, I mean, there's a couple moments I would say in in the play where we're like, okay, you know, maybe I don't love Oedipus's reaction here or there. Like he For gets sure. mad at Tiresias and things. But by and large, he seems to be a good king, right? Mm-hmm. Like he seems to really be like concerned about the good of his people. Yeah. And that's like, I think that's part, right? We, things are going fine. He saved the city. Like the amount of time in there before we get this unraveling, I think that adds so much because this is everyone's lives that are falling apart now. Yeah. It didn't have to be, I mean, it's sad to find out that you killed a king who's also your dad at a crossroads, but it's so much more messed up for your entire life story. You have to go back and rewrite your entire life story and then live with that for the rest of his life. Like he dies an old man or gets, you know, goes up to heaven or, you know, whatever, yeah. whatever happens to him at the end of Oedipus at Colonus. But he lives a really long time having to pick up the pieces from that. And like, man, that is I think that's part of one of the things that when I teach these plays, like getting the action's never going to be on the stage. Right. We never see the action. But what the tragedy is about is how do you live with? this horrific mess that that the gods and the world and everything has has thrown at you and now you you have to pick up the pieces and you mm-hmm. you have to deal with a family that is i mean this was never going to end well for this family that finds out they're grown children at this point like finding out all of these things about their parents and you know, uh, uh, Joe Costa takes her own life. And so, like, there was no way that this family was going to be okay. Like, whether or not it was going to end in civil war or <laughs> civic unrest, like, whatever. But, like, there's no way that Antigone and Ismene and Polynices and Etiocles, like, that's so much trauma that they are having to to reckon with. That there's just, there was no way that this story ends any way but, like, we a version where basically like this, this family's just gone. It's just done. Like we can't, we can't yeah. have this family anymore because nothing good can come from this kind of like, you know, fruit of the poison tree. Like this, this family is, is not going to be able to recover from this. Yeah. I mean, ultimately they're all just stories of like this horrific generational trauma. And I think that like the, the weird things that kind of get lost in us today, looking at these plays is like sort of the separate nature of them. So like, in Oedipus Tranos, like, I don't think that it's clear, you know, it would have been clear in the ancient world, but I don't think it's as clear to people coming at it today that the kids are grown, you know, that like this, this is probably a 20 year marriage that is getting blown up over the course of a few days in the most horrific way that like, so beyond the imagination. You and know? because someone's doing like doing his level best to try and save his city. Too. Yes. Like, like he's a good man, a good, like, and they have a happy family in a way that I think is so unique in Greek tragedy. Like we don't get a sense that, that there is any kind of unrest and that's what makes it so dark. Like you're saying like, yeah, he's a good King doing his best and it yeah. gets fucked up. Yeah, like that's just oh yeah, that's I mean that's one of the <laughs> the things that I love so much about these plays because like it, there's such a simplistic like if I tell people like oh it's a story of da 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 and like these stories maybe don't sound as as rich but when you start looking closely and like the way that people are talking about Oedipus at the beginning like he's they love him mm-hmm. like the chorus is I mean they love him and his you know, we don't see any evidence like his his kids. He seems to be a good father, um, though, as Sophocles is fond of pointing out every now and then later in the <laughs> later in the story, a good father slash half sibling. Um, <laughs> yeah. But like, yeah, I think I think that's the the way that these plays can really rope you in because it's mm-hmm. not 
it's not easy. And especially for um, when you're actually performing them, right? A lot of like modern theater training is you get inside that character and you you imagine, right? We, there's all kinds of different exercises that different theater practitioners use about, you know, the seven questions or, you know, in all of these different ways where like you're imagining the interior life. What does this character want? What are they, what are they doing? What are they, how do they feel about the things that have happened to them or the things that they've done? And I think when you start to do that with these stories, there's room in them, especially because we get so little interiority in our characters. Like Greek literature, often we we see what they say and what they do, but we don't often get their interior thoughts. And mm-hmm. so it gives you so much room to think about what is Antigone thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Like what we know what she says, we know what she does, but how how does she relate to that? And how do we want to depict that in terms of the relationship between the sisters and how she feels about her dead brothers. And, you know, all of all of those elements are things that you can really play with. And then when you have a retelling in novel form or in play form, you can kind of expand out and fill in those gaps and say, well, actually, here's what I think the five years before the events of this play looked mm-hmm. like. Here's what I think this like childhood for Antigone and Asmini might have been like or you know as later later on in their lives what is it what is it like to be them Mm -hmm. um as they're they're accompanying their father who's blinded and like it just so yeah I think because Greek myth leaves a lot of things not explicitly stated um or you know multiple versions can coexist that it gives you so much room to imagine different ways that things could have could have been or ways that people could have felt about the things that happened yeah yeah, and I mean, on the page, Antigone is just so like, I mean, I, I guess you just you don't get the sense of what came before. So I'm glad we did, you know, at, talk about a lot of Oedipus Tranos too, because I think it's so important to consider that like when Antigone starts, not only has like all of that happened, but you have to remember the num- the the way that she grew up happily and then had it all just and like presumably happily, but like I think that that adds so much to think that they had this happy life. And that then fully exploded in, again, like an unimaginable way, like in ways that literally no one could have ever predicted, except for the fact that it was except that it was definitely predicted, definitely (laughs) predicted. But like beyond that whole thing, other than the Oracle, no one in the whole world could have imagined finding out after 20 years that like your dad is also your brother and your mom is also your grandmother. Like it's not a thought, you know, and not to like, not to quibble with that, but like the I think the thing that's interesting is like when this was first performed, we didn't have that version, right? Like we don't mm. know if they had a happy life or not. Like right. you know, it's one of those where like because of the the weird order that these plays, you know, were were written and performed, there were probably you know, there were other versions of the story out there, but like we don't know for sure does the city love Oedipus? Does mm. how is Jocasta and Oedipus's marriage? Um are these children all the product of, of incest or are some of them like previous children from um, Lyot? Like we don't right. know what version Sophocles wants us to imagine. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes this is another thing I'm just low key obsessed about with mm-hmm. Sophocles plays that he makes a choice not to specify some of those details mm-hmm. at, at times where it's like he could have said, here's what we probably think the story would have been, but he doesn't specify those things, which does just leave so much room for the the reader or the viewer to kind of explore that possibility. Like, uh, you know, later we find out like, oh man, that makes me rethink how I, how I imagined Antigone now that I've seen this depiction of Oedipus. But because of the order, like, we're not mm-hmm. sure how any number of of opinions about what Antigone's childhood was like are perfectly fair game as you come into this play. You have a basic idea of the outlines of the story, but like any of the specifics, you you don't have until he explains it and he often doesn't put anything concretely down, make it illusions and it's assumed you know some of the story, but it's the like the what you know. You don't necessarily yeah. know the why and the how. And so I think, you know, it's it, I just really love the way that it kind of, as we read, if we read them in the order that they were performed, you know, imagine we have all the events of Antigone and we don't, we don't know how this, this child, like what, what anything about her life was like, what Creon's role has been thus far. We don't know any of those specifics. Then we get that, like a backstory, a prequel to that. Uh, and, you know, then we get this other, like, okay, what was the end of Oedipus's life? And the way that that every time we, we see a new play, 
it forces us to just sort of reassess all of the different things that we thought about this, uh, mm. about this story, about this family, keeping in mind that there's also a bajillion other plays and treatments of the story that are out there that we don't have. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. And so every time we're like having a new version of the story, it's sort of, if we think about, you know, all of these novels that are rewriting Greek myth, like every time there's a new one, it's like, oh, now when I go back and read the Odyssey, I'm reading it in light of um, Circe, right? And I'm imagining all mm-hmm. of this Circe stuff. And it's not in Homer, but like, maybe, I mean, you know, I can't, I can't unknow the things I, <laughs> I have thought about because I read Madeline Miller's Circe. And then, I don't know, I just read a... um. Uh, finished a Lies We Sing to the Sea. It's a like a YA novel set on Ithaca hundreds of years after Odysseus, but dealing with mm. with the hanging of the slave women is sort of a, a core plot point for it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, next time I read the Odyssey, like I'm going to be thinking about that also. And so this kind of way that when you get a new slant on a story, it just kind of recasts the f- earlier versions that you thought about, um, which mm-hmm. is something that I love because... I don't want to make a hard pivot here, but I want to tell you about one particular reception of Antigone that is so influential and like fundamentally recasts the way people tell this story. Like it's, well, let me, Please. let me give you the, the information about it first. Then yeah. we'll, then, um, <laughs> so Jean Anouy is this guy who is, um, he writes a version of Antigone in uh, France in 1944 is when it's first performed. Um, and France in 1944 is, uh, Nazi occupied. This is the Vichy France regime, the mm-hmm. regime. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's performed in the, the part that is occupied. Right. Um, and so, and you get this version that is, it's very, I don't know, sort of proto postmodern in some ways. Like we get the chorus talking about when your name's Antigone, your story can't end any other way, right? It's this very like Mm. self-aware reflection on this play, which does assume that the audience is kind of familiar with the original. Mm -hmm. Um, But then like Antigone is a little bit of a brat and Creon is doing a bit of a brat in the play. Yeah. And like it, it, she's petulant and it's, you know, the, there's no gods in this story, which for something set in World War II, I mean, this is very much in keeping with kind of this like 
nihilistic, modern, postmodern kind of view of like, oh God, like what, <laughs> what, what has happened to the world? Um, and, but Creon is doing the best he can and Antigone's insistence, she's, she's very much a teenager with an insistence on this is right and this is wrong and we have to do what's right. And Creon is trying to talk to her about like, well, but how many, like at what cost? And part of what we get, we find out like she barely knew her brothers. They were not great. They weren't good to her. They weren't great people. And he's like, you know, there's quite an age gap between them in this version of the story. Hmm. And you get this version where he's like, you're going to die for them. They would never have died for you. Like you're dying for a a story that isn't like an imagined version of your childhood that isn't real. Like, let me tell you about your brothers because you didn't really know them. Hmm. And it's just such an interesting, like Creon makes really good points and sure we shouldn't do things that are wrong, but at the same time, if it keeps, for example, your entire city from getting murdered by the Nazis is a small compromise to save hundreds of lives. I mean, it, it really grapples and like draws out that complexity that sometimes mm-hmm. I think you can overlook. It's there in Sophocles. There is a lot of really rich complexity, but it's it's easier to overlook it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think in, in this Ennui version, you just get such a different, complicated treatment of um and it it really complicates her decision to to want to die a martyr to want to die Mm -hmm. a hero and whenever I talk to uh to students about like I can't help but like the line from um Hamilton about like dying is easy young man living is harder like it's you can go out on a blaze of glory and is that is that the best thing you can do big picture is that the best Mm -hmm. option um, but I, I have a quote here from it. This is the chorus talking at the beginning. Um, and they they kind of comment like, well, here we are. These people are about to act out for you the story of Antigone. Um, and the, another thing she's thinking is this. She is going to die. Antigone is young. She would much rather live than die. But there is no help for it. When your name is Antigone, there's only one part you can play. And she will have to play hers through to the end. And mm. so like right out the gate, it's just such the like complex um treatment and like Creon has you know he's talking to her about like kings have other things to do than surrender themselves to their private feelings and it pulls out those things that I love in Sophocles if we imagine he never says that he's doing this for the good of the city per se like he's never that explicit about it but you know it's it's a corpse and it's one corpse and it's the entire city worth of of people maybe maybe that's a price worth paying and this crayon like really spells it out in a way that i think and and this becomes a version that really casts a long shadow in terms of thinking about ways to more explicitly humanize crayon um which is good and bad right it's a it's a more complex play but it also simply makes you sympathize with the state power with the you know if if we're mapping this onto a political context this is making the people who were complicit and um, collaborators with the Nazi regime a little more sympathetic. Mm. Is that what we want? Right. And I mean, it just opens up so many interesting conversations about what do we want art to do? Right. Do we want it to have a clear moralistic message? Sometimes maybe. Um, But that's also, I think you lose something when you try, when you want there to be just a clear, straightforward, beat you over the head with the message. Whereas a story that makes you really consider what the best thing to do, taking into account all of the different factors in play, what really is the best choice here? And is Antigone's sort of, I don't know, almost like, uh, like idealistic. Like she's like, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do something that I know is wrong. And there's something great about that but at the same time she she's just he's like I just want to explain to you I want you to understand what's going on and Antigone is consistently saying I don't have to listen to you Hmm. right you've decided to make certain decisions and I don't have to listen to you and I don't have to hear what you say and I don't have to to go along with what you want me to go along with and I think it's just such she's and partly she's just so young she's such a teenager in this where like all of the optimism and the idealism and all of the things that are so great about 
like looking back to when I was a teenager, like the way I thought about the world, Creon's cynical. And maybe we think that's he's right, but he's also like there's something really depressing about that being the reality. Like mm-hmm. he's living in the world of messy politics and compromises and he's probably he's probably right polonese sucks like he's this depiction of him like he's just he's he's not worth dying for especially if we take the gods out of it you're just dying for a symbol and yet her her confidence in the rightness of what she's doing is is also like very appealing and mm-hmm. i think that's one of the reasons this play like casts such a long shadow because it it pulls things out of this text that could be overlooked if you want this to be a simplistic moral story of like when when good stands up to evil Mm -hmm. that's absolutely fascinating um I I mean I think too like I'm trying to remember like it's been now like a year since I've read it and but I just remember thinking that like I guess it just it has so much to do with like Athens at the time too that if you kind of remove the historical context of tyranny and like piety then like once you just take those two little things out then you know the 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 who is right and who is wrong is a pretty enormous question mark because it, it really is like you know those aren't small things but they are kind of the hinges that make antigone right yeah and especially when you so a few years ago um Gonzaga, which is located in Spokane, um, was doing a version of um, Ennui's Antigone. Mm. And a college across town, Whitworth, was doing a a version of Sophocles' Antigone. Mm. And so we had some really interesting conversations, like bringing together um, the like directors and things for the two plays where being like, you know, let's talk about how you've imagined your characters and how you're setting this and how you're staging it and all of these things because we had these two different versions that were being performed like within a week of each other in the same city. Wow. Um, And, but yeah, it was, so we had one of the things that came up with the uh, Sophocles version is that, so this was, uh, well, this, the the conversation we had was shortly after um, the January 6th insurrection in the U S and she was saying that her students were really thinking about how, when you set it in ancient Greece and it's far away and you don't necessarily have to, to grapple with the contemporary implications, if you don't want to, you can, you can set it over there and and it's mm-hmm. fine. Um, but in the modern world saying, I don't care what the government says, I think something is right and I'm going to do whatever it takes to, to act on that. Like, we don't generally think that's a good thing, right? That's I, there was a production, uh, a while ago that a a master's student um, did in, it was at Columbia. Uh, And it was a, it was a really interesting uh, production and it sets the whole thing in, um, it's in the context of uh, abortion legislation Hmm. and Antigone calls in a bomb threat uh, at an abortion clinic and chains herself to the, the clinic because her uncle has run on a uh, anti-abortion platform and has changed his mind now that he's been elected and he's the governor of Virginia. And this was when like there was a lot of, of contemporary policy. There were a lot of laws being passed in Virginia that were restricting um, abortion access. And it turns out there, are, there aren't any brothers at all. It, it transposes the whole question of uh, what is owed to the dead to what is owed to like the unborn sort of. Mm. Um, and it turns out that um, Ismini, the Ismini character was uh, raped and needed and not, like her uncle really had a change of heart about some of his stances on things because he th- through her experiences was like, oh, I maybe maybe this kind of all or nothing rigid approach to this um, isn't isn't Fun- like feasible isn't right um and you know for an audience this was performed in new york for an audience of of you know fairly liberal new york theater goers um it it kind of makes you think because it was also performed right after a pretty traditional depiction of, or, or performance of antigone so you'd go see the antigone version there's a little like intermission pause and oh. then you kind of go right back in and see a, a reception of it which one of the things that i love about this is that it 
you know that the audience is familiar with the original. Like a lot of times receptions and adaptations, like you don't know how familiar your audience is with the the original version. This mm-hmm. one, like you went basically back to back um, and it was Antigone and Progeny were the two, uh, the two productions. And mm-hmm. so it, it really like you come out of the first one being like, yeah, oh, hell yeah, Antigone, like stand up to the man, tell him what's up. And, and especially for modern audiences, like Crayon's pretty misogynistic. And so like that Mm -hmm. codes as a, and I've seen performances that really play that up. He's like spitting Mm -hmm. out the, like, I'm not going to be bested by a woman. Like, and they play up that villainousness where you're like, it takes any, any nuance out of it. Like he's bad. You know, he's bad because he is, he's like very overtly misogynist. And so you're, you're like rooting for Antigone and then it puts it in the modern context. And you're like people who argue that they they know what the unwritten laws and what what is morally right and wrong. It doesn't matter what the state says. They need to operate based on a, a higher a higher law, a higher calling. Mm-hmm. We don't necessarily think that's good. Mm-hmm. Like that's that is at times very close to terrorism and extremism and things like that. And where mm-hmm. you you're taking extreme uh, at times violent action to to not do what the state said you're supposed to do. And it doesn't, especially like Athens was a democracy too, right? Like the idea that the state is oppressive and bad, this was performed under a democratic regime where I think that idea of like mythology is always ruled by kings. And so it's always, even in Athens, like in in mythological times, it's always king, king time. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a democracy where, you know, how how okay are we with you saying that you're not going to abide by the will of the, the demos, by the will of the people? Like, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I think those those versions that kind of put it in the modern world and make you really grapple with how how much do we want to valorize someone who thinks that her own moral compass is unquestionably correct and correcter than the judgment of of the people in, in a democratic system. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, with that play, I'm on Creon's side with the abortion. That's wild. Yeah. Right. It like, and that's one of the things that I love about that, like that performance is that it, it, I mean, it really just forces you to think about, about like what the implications of these things are. Mm-hmm. Um, Greg Taubman was the the person that did this this play as a, a master's thesis at Columbia um, wow. as a production, and but yeah, it it really kind of destabilizes you, like throws you off balance because you think. Yeah. I always think of if I had to. Do you remember there was in? Oh gosh, maybe at the beginning of the Me Too movement, um, somebody commissioned a statue of like a young girl in front of the the yeah. bull on Wall the Street, bull, and this yeah. like young girl like standing up to the bull, and like mm-hmm. I think like a, a, the general reading of Antigone, like I just think of like that image so much, like this mm-hmm. brave girl standing up to this like overwhelming force in her face, and it it really complicates that reading in a way that is mm-hmm. really, I think provocative and mm-hmm. and so I mean that's again one of the things that I think depending on how you there's a couple other um couple performances I want to I want to mention also because they're so Please, cool yeah yeah um so they're in Argentina in the 70s um the Argentinian dirty wars were going on and you have um like a military coup that deposes the president there and uh there are a lot of um subversive armed groups who are disappeared is sort of the language that they use for this. Like it's, Mm. uh, and the bodies are never found. Um, and so you get like mothers who, um, and my pronunciation is going to be very bad. Um, but the desaparecidos, um, the, the missing, the disappeared Mm -hmm. and this, so uh, there's this really contemporary resonance of not the bodies that are laying out in the open, but the bodies that aren't there, right? The absence of a body that you can't mourn, you can't grieve for your son or your husband or your father or whoever it is because the body's not, there's never a body. They're just presumed dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and Griselda Gambaro has this really, I, I love it. Um, Antigona Furiosa is the play and it's, she writes, uh, she, she was living in exile for a lot of the, she wrote a lot of, of things that challenged the, 
<laughs> the military government there. Um, but she wrote, uh, so she wrote this version where essentially there's two people in the front. There's like two men at a table and they're discussing and they're talking through um, the events of essentially the events of Sophocles version, like in the past that they're recounting it. And Antigone is in the background in this sort of, um, she starts off hanged um, and then she takes off the rope and she's, it's almost like her story is happening backwards. Mm. Um, And she's sort of prowling in the background and she's reenacting things that are going on while the men recount um, these sort of soldier, soldier type men are, um, are recounting these events. And it's just this really, I don't know. It's, it's a really cool reflection on like totalitarian governments and things. And it, it really visualizes where, like she plays so many of the missing characters and it just forces you to see like it makes visible the absence of people which is so mm-hmm. relevant to what was happening during the dirty wars that there's just these this absence that's felt but you can't grieve them and you don't even know if they're dead for sure um and but you know again that this is a version where like antigone is right and the state is wrong. And if you want to do this as a protest piece, which is such a popular thing to do with depictions of Antigone, um, mm-hmm. this is a play that often Antigone, like classics are, they're traditional and they might even be seen as sort of um, politically conservative. And they oftentimes get under the radar of censors. Like the version mm-hmm. of Antigone that was performed in Vichy France wasn't censored. Mm-hmm. Um, Gambaro's she doesn't want performed until like she doesn't want her family to to face consequences so it wasn't performed uh, for, until quite a bit later mm. um, but it's this is you know it's it's a protest piece against totalitarian authoritarian violence and you don't want a complex creon then because a complex mm-hmm. creon like humanizes the the violent state power that's oftentimes mm-hmm. if you're using this as a piece of activist art you, you don't really want to make people sympathize with the bad guys you want to galvanize the resistance to the bad guys right you want mm-hmm. you want creon to be bad and we have to stand up to him and we have to fight the power and we have to overthrow this dictatorship or whatever whatever it is that you're going for mm-hmm. and so these versions that like add in all this nuance and this complexity and make us really question whose side we're on is interesting from a literary perspective but can be fundamentally counterproductive from an activist perspective right like if you mm-hmm. want to and there have been a bunch of versions where um Seamus Heaney has a version that is thinking explicitly about the Iraq war um mm-hmm. and there's like language that absolutely echoes like um some of the like President Bush's war on terror talk mm-hmm. and like again we don't he's not interested in in humanizing Creon, like Creon overreach. Creon did things that were not good and people who resist him are the good guys, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but the, and the last one I want to mention on this, on this vein is um, during the protests about George Floyd's murder. Mm. And there was a performance that was done, um, Antigone and Ferguson, that was done, mm. um, sort of a staged reading that I mean, it was really powerful, had a lot of, of pretty well-known high-profile actors. Um, but again, thinking specifically about racial violence. And it was not like it, it was not that interested in um humanizing Creon. Mm-hmm. Right? Because that's that's explicitly sort of that was the dominant or well, that is the message that like media and and state power has sort of like these killings were justified or whatever and like Mm -hmm. so you don't want to give a lot of time and sympathy and and perspective empathy to that person to that side of things this play wanted to galvanize people around how like this body was left in the road for hours right and like what a grave moral crime that is Mm -hmm. um and so you know I think this is this is part of why I really wanted to choose Antigone for this production uh this competition because there are two really competing traditions of maybe Antigone is flawed and maybe sometimes she's a little brat but she's ultimately right Mm -hmm. and the right thing to do is to stand up to people in power who are telling you to do something that's wrong and there's the like well are we so sure about that (laughs) strain of reception Mm -hmm. and I think like both are 
the text allows for both. Like they're both mm-hmm. very available as as readings of this text, depending where you situate yourself within the text and what what you make this play sort of about, right? Mm-hmm. When we perform Greek tragedy in the modern world, it's never really about Greece. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's using these as a vehicle or any kind of like classical reception. Like mm-hmm. it's it's almost always using these as a vehicle to talk about power or gender or society or whatever, you know, but it's, it's the contemporary moment. And so, um, anyway, I think that's one of the things that's really cool about this play and gets lost sometimes in more simplistic treatments that Mm -hmm. overlook how, like how rich this text is. Yeah. I'm fascinated by all of that. Just these like very, very distinct ways of performing it. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah just taking it all in the way you can like make creon good or bad and same with antigone like yeah that's absolutely it's it's really interesting and like i think that it does lend itself so much to sort of yeah creating this like entirely new whatever you want it to be kind of thing i there's one i just want to like I'm so excited about this performance that it's going to be actually happening at Gonzaga in the spring, January-ish, I think. Um, but Beth Piotot is a playwright who, um, she's a associate professor of literature at UC Berkeley and is, um, she's uh, Nez Perce enrolled in the Colville tribe. And she is doing a uh, rewriting um, Antigone um, that is going to be a rewriting of Antigone set uh, within a native community hmm. and it's being, um, like workshopped, uh, at Lewis and Clark state college in Idaho. And then they're going to be doing like a, an early performance of it. And I'm so, cause it, it focuses on from what I, I have heard about the script. Um, I just learned about this recently and I'm super excited, but it focuses on the question of, um, so NAGPRA, oh dear, national, hold on. Um, it has to do with what um, Native American remains. NAGPRA. Let me see what that stands for. Native yeah. American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. Mm. Um, that has to do with the treatment of human remains um, from indigenous tribes that are in like museums and not being treated the way that the tribes would would want them to be treated and given kind mm-hmm. of the, the appropriate um, burial and treatment and honor and things. And uh, so the two sisters are people who have varying degrees of like um, Antigone wants remains returned to, to their tribe. Like no questions asked. They, they belong to us. They should come back. And the museum in question has said that, uh, they can be returned as long as they're displayed in a museum, which is not what the tribe would want to do. Um, Mm -hmm. and so you have this, like, Ismini is saying like, this is, this is a win. We can get like these, these remains can come home. Like this, this is a win. And Antigone is saying like, no, that's like, I'm not going to accept a partial win. Mm -hmm. Um, and anyway, I am so excited about this performance because I think it's such an interesting, especially in the modern political movement, like that fundamental tension of is half a win better than no win right? It's such mm-hmm. an interesting, like, broad ethical question. And then given this kind of specificity to um, looking at it within, uh, like, a, a tribal context, I think is is going to be really cool. So I'm uh, just a, an upcoming place where there's going to be, like, yet another kind of use of this story to tell a contemporary, you know, to, to have a contemporary debate in the midst of this story about Antigone and Ismini. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, I mean, that yeah that that's absolutely fascinating an indigenous take on it uh, like it, it, it's interesting to me just as a canadian so listening to everything and the way that um that the states uh, speaks about and refers to like everything to do with indigenous peoples the difference between canada and the states is fascinating to me um so i'm like i'm not i'm not like <laughs> commenting i'm just kind of like every time i kind of like obviously in Canada, like I mean, I, I we're just the fucking worst. Um, but also like, we, I don't know, we, we are a mess. Um, in in so many different ways that I won't get into. But like that that's just basically fascinating. And I'm like taking it in as this Canadian. <laughs> well, as soon as soon as I threw like the like NAGPRA, I was like, oh, okay, this is going to be a very different. Uh... <laughs> political like the you know just the laws and things are are very different um yeah but, but this is I mean this gets into something that I, I'm more broadly interested in is the way that classical texts like not only can they 
be a great way to um, do subversive things because they often won't get censored when other things will get censored. Like mm-hmm. certain playwrights, if you want to perform some of their work, if you're in a pretty repressive regime, they're going to be like, mm-hmm. oh no, that I know that's a rabble rousing playwright or that's a rabble rousing mm-hmm. whatever. Um, but classics often don't because like, oh, mm-hmm. Plato and Sophocles and really Greek yeah. stuff is great. Um, and so I think that classical texts can be really valuable as like political subversive tools. But the other thing that is great is that um, because classical texts are so closely associated with colonial powers or like, you know, so like British Empire or anyone that's sort of British Empire adjacent. So, (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, you know, you get a lot of these really interesting uses of like rewriting or retelling or kind of pushing back against a dominant reading uh, of of a classical text in post-colonial context like you get a lot of these really interesting kind of resistant receptions of um of tragedies or of of whatever and like the in um there's a great book on this and I really should look up my sources (laughs) before I, I jump into talking about things but um the the Oedipus family is like that whole the Theban plays and and the mm-hmm. the myths writ large um, are really popular in a lot of post colonial contexts because mm-hmm. this idea of like killing your father and the ways that like this kind of um, paternalistic like colonialism and imperialism was phrased as so paternalistic that this idea of like killing your father like family tensions often is is the symbolic language that a lot mm-hmm. of people want to push back against colonial powers. And so you see like a lot of, of African playwrights and Caribbean playwrights, um, in like, um, darker face of the earth by Rita Dove in the U S like looking at in the context of slavery, you get a lot of these versions that are retelling, um, and kind of recasting these, these Greek tragic stories for very subversive anti-colonial decolonial purposes. And so I think I'm not as familiar with uh, the use among Native Americans, like of, of some of the the receptions and adaptations. So mm-hmm. I'm super excited to see um, how, like, how how this particular version is gonna gonna play out because I think it's I've I've looked a lot at more in the context of Africa um, and the Caribbean, uh, but like the looking at it in terms of of indigenous peoples in, in the Americas, like. Yeah. I'm super excited. Yeah. And what a plot to use. Like, I am fascinated by that. It sounds amazing. Well, yeah. You're not that far from us. I'm not. I'm thinking things. I'm thinking things. I'm thinking of my assistant producer who is also on the mainland and I think would be fascinated by this. Um, yeah. Also, I realize I used a phrase like the mainland, which only she will understand, but Michaela will laugh. It's fine. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Taking real note of that. Yeah. Um, I will. As soon as we have all yeah. the details on it, um, I've been in contact with our, the director of Native American studies here is, um, is super excited about it. So we were like planning all kinds yeah. like, oh my God, this is going to be great. We're going <laughs> to, we'll do some like tie-ins with classes. And so I will, I will be sure to keep you apprised. Please, please. That sounds amazing. Oh my God. Um, okay. Yes. So uh, yeah, I'm in on all of this. There's so much incredible reception. I'm so glad you just shared it all with me. Um, <laughs> what, what more do people need to know about the actual, the contest itself? Well, um, the information for entry is um, going to be through uh, Out of Chaos Theater is the the group that is sort of hosting this and to find information about entries uh the website for this i think if you just google playing antigone um you can probably find it but it's through out of chaos theater which is a uk-based theater group who's sort of organizing this um so out of chaos theater uh out hyphen of hyphen chaos.co.uk slash playing hyphen antigone hyphen us so i would just google it i think it's going to be much easier to find that way yeah i Um, will link to it too there will be a link in the episode marvelous you can click right in there but this way they have everything yeah excellent (laughs) um and the we haven't set the exact deadline for entry but it's going to be in the early new year i think we just we were looking at mid-february is going to be the deadline and we'll have all of the details posted up on that website 
Um, we're going to be using Paul Wood- Paul Woodruff's translation of Antigone, which is a marvelous translation. There's going to be about five or six scenes available, um, and there'll be more and more materials available there if you're interested in doing any number of different. We'll put some um, pictures of different productions, some clips. And so if you want to learn more about the reception of Antigone or how actors have approached this play, um, there'll be a lot of information there. And there will be prizes for, uh, it's open to both high school and college students in the U.S. and Canada. And there'll be other, for people in other countries, there'll be some other, um, there's going to be a U.K., I think, and a Greece one. Um, Those will be separate competitions that'll be launched soon. And um, you can also sign up on the website for updates as we post more materials and resources and things if you are interested in that, including for anyone who is a teacher and would like a lesson plan, we will have a lesson plan for teaching Antigone. Um, with some stuff put together there. So even if you're not an expert at these plays, but you're just enthusiastic and you want uh, you want to get involved in one way or the other, there'll be a ton of resources to help give you kind of a, a road into this magnificent text with a really long and rich production history. Yeah. Oh, that sounds so exciting. Okay. Um, yes. And so you're yes. going to be a judge. Yes. Like, shouldn't shouldn't sleep on that. I know. <laughs> we have a famous just... celebrity guest judge. Oh, gosh. That's wild to think about. <laughs> yeah, I'm so excited. Like, as soon as you asked, I was like, I mean, it was so much fun to do the Dionysus ones last year and just, like, see nerdy things and then get to pick <laughs> from nerdy things. Like, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, So I'm very excited, too. <laughs> As always, thank you, nerds, for listening. I was so thrilled to have Amy on to talk about this. I mean, it is, it's so exciting that I get to be a judge for this contest, but also I just really wanted to learn about all these different, the different ways that Antigone's story has been used to tell like such wide, different, incredible stories of resistance in all of its forms. It was really, really great. Plus, Amy is just like really fun to talk to. So we had a ball. If you are a student in the U.S. or Canada, you should think about doing this because there are truly countless ways to use this play and you could win some glory and, you know, whatever else. But glory. And then I also get to watch you do it. (laughs) As always, with these Tuesday episodes, let's end with a five star review from one of you lovely listeners. These really make my day. This one comes from a user called Jamalicious in the UK. Great username. Uh, And this one is short and to the point, which is a reminder that literally any five-star review will make me happy and I could be reading it on the show. Love. Amazing for literally anyone. That was it. See what I mean? (laughs) Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians, my assistant producer. The podcast is hosted and monetized by iHeartMedia. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron where you'll get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. I am Liv and I. I love this shit. I really do. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and Starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long 
which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.